0: You know, I personally am obsessed with finishing well. I'm way past the age of starting well. You know, but I'm, I'm, I'm talking now about finishing well. And it's interesting to look at, at someone who has finished or is finishing well and look at the characteristics in that person's life. In fact, I've read a couple of surveys on that and also look to someone who's blown it and isn't finishing well and see what the contributing factors are. You know, so you look back, you know, what we want to do is we don't want to have to look back and say, hey, what happened? Paul's writing this tonight to Timothy. Timothy was a relatively young person. You know, the, the word that's used for young in Timothy, it's a Greek word that isn't used for anyone over the age of 40. And a couple of commentators said it's not used for anybody under the age of 30. So we got a, a, an interesting bracket for Timothy. 30 to 40, let's call him 35 and, and, and leave it at that. Probably a single adult. Now, Paul's writing to him. Paul is in jail. And he's waiting. He knows it. He's waiting to be executed. Now, he's pretty much alone, as we'll see in the chapter, in jail, waiting to die, alone. If you ask me, that's a recipe for self-pity, if I've ever seen it. But you know, Paul looks back on all of this, sitting there, and he says, I'm finishing well. I've finished the grace. I've kept the course. And you know tonight i think as he writes to timothy he's saying to timothy six things to this young man that is going to keep him on the course and so timothy at the end us too we can say the same thing we have finished well i know three people that didn't finish well first one i know intimately i have preached with him in his places in the jungle of peru in, in the cities in Bolivia and all through Costa Rica and different places and he absolutely blew it near the end of his life. A second one just happened two weeks ago. I know him and, and and he did the same thing. The third one I don't know but I heard about his situation. He said something very interesting. I ruined my life in 14 minutes. I ruined my life in 14 minutes. And uh, Obviously, there's more contributing factors into the thing. I mean, what he did started with with thoughts uh, a long time ago, and then there were other things that came in. But the way he looked at it, he ruined his life in 14 minutes. Let's take a look at what Paul says to Timothy. Starting 1 Timothy 4, verse 6. He says, For I am already poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is... Now, that's not the first time he says this. He says it also in Philippians 2.17. But I will rejoice even if I lose my life, pouring it out like a liquid offering to God. He's talking about the the drink offering, the liquid offering in the Old Testament. And uh, in that offering, the last thing they did is they poured red wine over the top of it and it dripped down. Now, we know that Paul, being a Roman citizen, they couldn't crucify him. So, What did they do with people who weren't Roman citizens? They decapitated him. So he knew what was waiting for him. He knew that he was going to lose his head. And his blood was going to drip down. And so he's making an allusion to to this offering in the Old Testament. He was in what we call the death cell. It's sort of like being on death row. The death cell was the cell that you were in just before you were taken to be executed. Now let's finish the passage. Verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. And now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. But not only to me, but also to all those who have longed for his appearing. Verse 9, do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, we'll go back and take a look at Demas in a couple minutes, Because he loved this world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. Now I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. Say that 10 times quickly. (laughs) I'm not going to try to repeat it. When you come bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander, will go back and take a look at him. The metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my right side and gave me strength so, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and that all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul's writing to his go-to guy, Timothy. Timothy. And, you know, we know Timothy probably had some some health issues, some stomach problems, and he probably was a little on the timid side. Maybe he was discouraged. Maybe he felt like giving up. That's why Paul is writing to him. So what Paul gives Timothy and us tonight in this passage are six simple—now, maybe they're simple to say, but maybe they're not so simple to do—but Six simple characteristics of a person who finishes well. So I want to take a look at those tonight. If you want to end well, you've got to live well now. And and if you don't start well and continue well, it's difficult to catch up. What we don't want to do is make some type of a decision, 14 minutes, some type of a decision, you know, that is going to mark us for the rest of our life. Of the six, three are obvious. And then there's three that are not so obvious. So let's start in. First of all, verse 7, what does he say? You want to finish well, first of all, you got to fight the good fight. The Christian life here is called a fight. It's a struggle. He says in 1 Timothy 1.18, Timothy, my son, here are my instructions to you. May they help you fight well in the Lord's battles. Another place, 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of the true faith. This word fight in Greek is where we get our word agony. He's looking at the Christian life as a struggle, a fight. Why? Why does he say the Christian life is a is a struggle? You know the word fight or struggle implies something. It implies that we have an opponent. <laughs> Take a look at the World Cup if you're watching it. You know, you you don't go out there onto the pitch without an opponent. Now, if, if 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 there was no opponent, you could just go down and score every time. Unless, except if you were on the team that I played on, we'd probably get one in the second half. But we never forget. anytime, time, every time, we want to advance the kingdom of God. It's going to be a struggle, because we have an opponent. Right now, Jose and the gang they are in Uganda. They're going to be opposed because they are going out there to further the kingdom of God. Listen to Ephesians 6, 10 to 12. Finally, Paul says, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. Paul sees himself as a battle here. A battle against these evil spirits in the heavenly places. It's against temptation. It's, and, and you know, the, 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 the devil is called the tempter in two places. He's also called the enemy in two places. Right there. And look at how many places his, his name actually means adversary. Satan means adversary or opponent. Look at all those places. 1 Thessalonians 2.18, for we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. How? We don't know. I mean, I, I think if they wanted to know, they, they would have said it. We don't know how, but he did. Might have been through circumstances, might have been through sickness some way, but he blocked his way. Then 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4. Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. Now, before we go on, unless we think that our enemy has more power, let's take a look at a couple of verses because we are on the winning team. 1 John 3.8. The Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. That word destroy, very interesting word. It means to untie knots. And, you know, we get these knots in our lives, and, you know, and God came to untie those knots. 1 John 4, 4. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. One of my favorite scriptures in all of the Bible, Hebrews 2, 14. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, The Son also became flesh and blood, for only as a human being could he die. And only by dying could he do what? Break the power of the devil, who had the power of death. So, when we are going into the battle, there's going to be an opponent. But sometimes, that opposition takes the form of human opposition. And go to verse 14 there. There's a guy there called Alexander. Alexander the metalworker did me a great deal of harm. This is probably the same guy we find in First Timothy one nineteen and twenty. For some people have deliberately violated their consciences, and as a result, their faith has been shipwrecked. Hymenaeus and Alexander—there he is—are two examples. What did Paul say? I threw them out and handed them over to Satan. So they might lo- uh, learn not to blaspheme God. Alexander was in the church. Some believe he was one of the leaders of the church. And he turned, somehow he turned against Paul. And some scholars believe he was the one that informed on Paul for him to be arrested. The opposition can come from strange, unexpected sources. And in this case, friendly fire. Paul says also, one other thing before we leave this point. You notice he says the good fight? I always think when he says the good fight, there must be a bad fight. And uh, he says, make sure, I think what he's saying is, we got to choose our battles right. Let's make sure we're choosing the right battle to fight. Look at 2 Timothy 2.14, because there are some battles that are not worth fighting. Command them in God's presence to stop fighting over words. That's not the good fight. Such arguments are useless and then can ruin those who hear them. Alexander fought the wrong fight. Now, that was number one. Number two, if we're going to finish well, he says finish the race, or finish the course, it could be, in verse seven. If you've been watching the, uh, it was on today also, the track and field from Eugene. And uh, it's it's really, I, I used to go all the time to track meets. I love to watch him when they were run well. And you know, in a track meet, when they think there's a chance of a record being set, 1,500 meters, 3,000 meters, 5,000, 10,000 meters, they put someone in the race, and they call him the rabbit. Now the rabbit, in that race, he's got a lot of speed, but he's got no stamina. He's not gonna finish the race. He doesn't wanna finish the race. He's not in there to finish the race. He's just there to go part of the way to encourage the others to run faster. We're not the rabbit. We're supposed to finish the race. Hebrews 12.1, let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. Philippians 3.14, I press on to reach to the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. Galatians 5.7, perhaps a little bit of a sad verse. You were running the race so well. Who has held you back from following the truth? And then a great passage in Acts 20 24. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given to me the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. In that context, here, verse 11. We have a young man called Mark. There was an incident, if you remember in Acts, incident in Acts 15. This young man, Mark, gave up. Rather than talk to you about it, why don't we just read it? It's in um, Acts 15, 36 to 40. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John along, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it was wise to take him because he had deserted. That's a very strong word in Greek. He had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace. Of the Lord. Now, here's a young man who quit the race. He may have started fast, but he quit. And the, the term here that's used is deserted. A little while ago, I was reading in, in um, some reports, and uh, it's, it's shocking that 50% of all missionaries don't go back after their first term or don't complete their first term of service. 50%. They give up before it's Now, there's a lot of reasons for it, There's health reasons, there's family reasons, there's a lot of reasons that it happens. But it happens. And it's interesting, the the prime reason that missionaries don't is that they don't get along with their coworkers. But, But God has sent us here to finish the race. Now, when I look at this, we want to make sure that we're not thinking of the 100 meters or the 200 meters or the 400 meters. We're looking at a marathon here. We're looking at a long race. And when I look at this, my, the image that comes to my mind is a cross country. And the reason is when I played basketball in college, they made the basketball team run on the cross country team to get in shape. It was not pretty. I mean, I remember running with our, next to our center who was 6'9", I'm 5'6". And they made us run and we had to, but, but still in my mind, I can, I can remember that course. The course went over a creek through an olive grove, down a hill, and then up what we called Heartbreak Hill, because you just get to the top, and then you'd have to go back down, and then you'd go through another cross-country race. That's cr- and that's what I think when he says race here in 2 Timothy. That's the type of thing. We have obstacles. We go up. We go down. God is with us, and we're going by his grace to finish well. Hebrews 12, 2 and 3. How do we do this? We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. So the first one, fight the good fight. Second was finish the race. The third, remain faithful. And The NIV says keep the faith. The context there, the Greek, It goes both ways you could say keep remain faithful or keep the faith I think the context more favors remain faithful I one of the things that uh, I have continued to do at the Luis Palau organization is answer the counseling letters we get oh we we don't get as many as we used to but we still answer maybe five to six thousand a year and ninety nine point nine percent are in Spanish and um, I, I get about once a week a, 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 a letter that's something like this: Someone prophesied over me in our church, and he prophesied I was going to have a great, large ministry. The other, the other variation of that is I get the letter, and someone said I had a dream. And when I had this dream, I was in front of thousands of people. And when I get those letters, I send them this verse out of Luke 16.10. The Bible says there is one rule regarding faithfulness. If you are faithful in little things, you will be faithful in large ones. That's the formula. That's the way it always happens. Verse 10, Demas. Demas has deserted me, Paul says. He wasn't faithful. He loves the things of this life. The NIV says he loves this world. And he's gone to Thessalonica. Demas must have been, he had to have been, a great disappointment for Paul. He was not faithful. Now Demas is mentioned briefly in Colossians, Colossians 4, Philemon 1 both written before 2nd Timothy by the way he's mentioned he was with Luke he was with Mark he had been with Paul during very difficult times Paul says Demas deserted me he loves the world he loves the things of this world now when you go with Paul you got to admit you had an interesting life but maybe you didn't have all the comforts and it says here he went to Thessalonica The Bible says about the world, 1 John 2, 15 to 16, do not love this world nor the things it offers you, for when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our own achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. Demas loved this world and he went to Thessalonica. Why? Well, maybe he was going home. But you know, it was a long way. Thessalonica was an interesting city. It, it had the favor of the Roman government. And as, as being uh, uh, having that favor of the Roman government, they didn't have to pay taxes. Now, that wouldn't be bad. You got to admit that. They didn't have to pay taxes, and they had the right to make their own coins, and they didn't have to have Roman soldiers within their city walls. You know what I think happened to him? I think Demas went for the good life. Great disappointment for Paul. Have you ever had someone in your life that has really disappointed you? I mean, really disappointed you. This was Demas. We lived in Mexico. We had a a Bible study. It was sort of like a missional community, but in those days, we didn't know any better. We called them Bible studies. And, uh, you know. And so, it was happening, it was Thursday night, and uh, nothing happened. I mean, it was the same people every week. Nothing was going on. And we had started this church in the north side of Mexico City, and, uh, but one night, and I'm not totally sure, I'm looking at my wife, I'm not totally sure how they came. She doesn't know either. Okay, Enrique Laura, a couple came. This couple knew everybody. I mean, they were connected all over the north side of Mexico City, and they had an f- extended family, and they st- brought their, their parents, they brought his brother, they brought cousins, and pretty soon, and, I, and with, within months, we went from that one Bible study to 500 people in Bible studies all over the area, mostly because of Enrique and Laura's ministry. I remember one night. This hasn't got nothing to do with anything. I remember one night, Enrique came to me, and he was sort of half drunk, and he said, "I've been, I've been at the bar witnessing." And I said, "You know, I think we need to have a talk." You know. <laughs> but one week, Enrique and Laura went on vacation, two-week vacation. They didn't take their Bible, and they came back very different. Very different people. And it wasn't too long after that they became sporadic in their attendance at the Bible study, sporadic in their attendance at church, and pretty soon they dropped out completely. And Not the people that they came were, were, were still faithful. They dropped out completely and turned their back on the... It was the greatest disappointment I think I've had in my entire life. So if we're going to finish well... There's three more things we have to look at. And then and then we'll then we'll pray. If we're going to end well, we also have to respond well to life's difficulties. Paul was alone. Luke was still with him, but he felt his lack of a team. And notice in verse 16, it wasn't the first time that he was alone. At my first defense, he says, "No one came to support me, but everybody deserted me." Like I say, what a recipe for self-pity. In fact, this is the first step on the road to bitterness. We are never going to finish well if we are dragging bitterness, resentment, offenses, self-pity in with us. Now in two weeks, we're going to deal both in the morning and the evening with one word, bitterness. Take a look at what the Bible says, its causes, its cures, what the Bible says about bitterness, why, what I call it, the most contagious of all sins but we'll leave it for two weeks just say a couple of things right now I a couple of months ago I was in Cuba and when I was in Cuba a man came up to me and he said you know my dad served the Lord for 35 years and then he left the ministry started drinking and when he died he said we buried a drunk I said what happened he said he let things accumulate, little offenses. And they started to accumulate, you know, and then you feel sorry for yourself, self-pity. After all, easy, I'm right. And there's nothing harder to deal with than a bitter person who's right. Look at the way he responded to Mark in verse 11. Bring Mark, remember Mark abandoned him. Bring Mark with you when you come, for he will be helpful to me in the ministry. Forgiveness, restoration, another ministry, fellowship. The way he responded, Paul responded to Alexander in verse 14. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. No anger, no bitterness, no revenge, just a warning to Timothy. The way he responded to being alone for the first time in verse 16, may it not be held against them, forgiveness, compassion, mercy. And if we're going to finish well, we cannot let those hurts and offenses that that will come along. My wife and I have a rule in our house: we can't both be discouraged the same day. It's a rule oh, is it your day? Hmm, no, it's my day. <laughs> this reminds me of a few, a, few, a few verses. Remember when Philip was being stoned, Acts 7, verse 60? Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then Jesus on the cross, Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Number five. Verse 8. We need to have an eternal perspective. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus and realize that Jesus is coming. That eternal perspective will get us through. Now, he says in verse 8, there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all those who've longed for his appearing. It's a crown of righteousness. It consists of righteousness. We will become righteous. When we became Christians, we were declared righteous. When we get to be with him, we will be righteous. And it's stored up, waiting for us in that day. That's the perspective. We have to realize that that's going to happen. And who's the judge? The righteous judge, verse 8, it's Jesus. Paul was just about to appear before Nero the unrighteous judge and he was going to say guilty as charged and then a few moments after he was going to appear before the righteous judge who was going to say not guilty and he was going to be truly righteous the crown of righteousness you know and um This is a hope not only for Paul, but for all of us who love his appearing. The idea here is to have spent time longing for his appearance. In fact, in in the Greek here, there's an intensifier eagerly looking forward to his appearance. One thing for sure, having that eternal perspective will keep your focus. It'll help you to stay faithful. It will keep you in the race. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is the one we want to see. He is the center of our lives. We will see him. We will be with him. That's the eternal perspective. This is the one thing we have that no other religion has, and that's one word, hope. We have hope. Now, the last one. In order to finish well, we have to understand, but not only understand, practice it, make a habit of it, the importance of companionship, friendship, companionship. Deserted. He had sent his team to different places. Only Luke was with him. He wanted Timothy to come. He wanted him to bring Mark. He needed his team members. But why? That's easy to answer. Ecclesiastes. Two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one fails, the other can reach out and help but someone who falls alone is in real trouble. A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. Why did he want them to come? To minister together, to read the scriptures together, to pray together, to encourage each other. You know, one thing we were talking about this morning uh, out in the hall was, it's it's amazing how some people, in the time of their greatest need, isolate themselves. I need some time for myself, and they back away. They stop going to church, stop going to their small groups, and they back away. We, I was an elder in a, in a church, and um, we had an incident happen. This is really a tragedy. And the daughter of one of our leaders became ill in the afternoon, and that night she died. I mean, it was really quick. And he, uh, we went over, we prayed with the family and everything. And he said, I'm going to take some time. We're going to work this through. And three years later, he came back. He said, that was the worst mistake I ever made, was backing away. Now, we need each other. And Paul recognized this. Some people back away. Paul calls for reinforcements. I love this verse. You know, isolation, aloneness amplifies any problems. There's a great verse here in Psalm 68:6. 6. God places the lonely in families. Genesis 2:18. It's not good for a man to be alone. I'll make him a suitable helper for him. it uh for years I led a uh, small group in in church. Before, before sunset was started, and in that church, our idea in the church was to uh, develop camaraderie and confidence so that we could open, open our hearts to each other, and we could um, pray for each other and help each other, whether it be physically, spiritually, whatever. If there was a need, we'd be there. One night, this one lady came, and uh, she walked in. And I said, how you doing? She said, fine. We had the study. We prayed and everything. She took me by the arm, dragged me out into the hall, started weeping. Our daughter, who, who, by the way, got married at 15, her daughter dropped off our grandchild at our home and left, and we don't know where she's gone, if she's ever coming back. And she was just weeping and, and 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 I said, Where's your husband? Oh, he was so embarrassed he stayed home. Now, here we are in a group that we've been together for two years. The idea is to open our, our hearts to each other, and she would not open her heart to the group. Again, it's something about us, but Paul didn't understood something different. He understood the absolute importance of companionship, of friendship. Hebrews 10, 23 to 25. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. And let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now, that the day of the Lord's return is drawing near. This morning on on YouTube, I watched a video of a man called John Stephen Aquati. He's from Tanzania. Now, I know some of you weren't even born in 1968, but uh, I remember the the Olympics, the Olympic Games of 1968, they were held in Mexico City, and um, John Stephen Aquati became internationally famous for not winning a race. He was a marathon runner from Tanzania who dislocated his knee halfway through the race. And uh, he kept going. He, he tied some, some, some handkerchiefs on his knee and tried to put it back into place, and he kept going. And the video shows him coming into the Olympic Stadium in Mexico City well an hour after the last competitor had finished. Stop dragging his legs, stop, run a little bit, walk a little bit. He finally got to that. There were very few people left in the stadium. Finally got to the finish line, and one of, one of the reporters said to him, why didn't you just quit? And he said, my country did not send me 15,000 kilometers to quit the race. They sent me here to finish it, and God has sent us here to finish the race and to finish it well. And we're gonna do that by number one, fighting the good fight. Two, finishing the race. Three, remaining faithful. Four, responding well to all those little offenses and things that happen to us every day. Next, having that eternal perspective And finally, understanding the absolute importance that we have in our lives of fellow Christians and companionship. That way, we will be with like Paul when we're at the end, instead of saying, what happened? We'll look back and say, I'm finishing well. And that's what we want for all of us.